6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Lamentations, chapters 1 and 2. Well, that gives rise to Jehoiachin. Now, Jehoiachin has two other names encountered in Scripture. He's also called Jeconiah or Coniah, where you leave the word God out of his name, making it Coniah. But the point is, he's also bad news. In fact, he is such bad news that God pronounces a blood curse on he and his descendants. That is declared in Jeremiah 22, 30, one of the most important verses in Jeremiah that you want to be aware of. Because it, in effect, God decrees that none of his seed will ever prosper or sit on the throne in Judah. And it's interesting because we know from Genesis 49 that God's committed to having the Messiah come from the royal line. And here there's now a blood curse on the royal line. That would seem to be a paradox, a contradiction, what have you. And yet uh, the way out of that box canyon is a virgin birth. And that's another part of the story. But we also, that leads to the second siege of Jerusalem, and that's the one in which Ezekiel is also deported to Babylon. Jehoiakim Kim reigns from 609 to 597 when the Battle of Karshemesh takes place, and Nebuchadnezzar succeeds in defeating Pharaoh Necho, and then that was the first siege. Just to get the sieges straight, there's three different sieges, and the first siege is the one that the nobles, and Daniel and so forth, Daniel was in the noble line, by the way, and they get deported. Jehoiachin is so evil that God puts a blood curse on him, as I mentioned. And then Jehoiachin intrigues and tried to adopt a pro-Egypt policy against the Babylonians. That doesn't go over very well with the the emerging big gorilla on the block, namely Nebuchadnezzar. And that leads to the second siege of Jerusalem. And that's the one in which Ezekiel is now deported. So in Babylon, we now have Daniel and Ezekiel. In Jerusalem, we have Jeremiah. Jehoiakim is replaced by his uncle, actually, Zedekiah, who reigns for about 17 or 18 years. Now, he also engages in pretty stupid politics because he intrigues with Nebuchadnezzar's enemies. Rather than yielding, as Jeremiah is telling him to do, he says, if you don't yield, God's going to destroy Jerusalem. They're subservient, but Jerusalem's still there. They'll get clobbered. Zedekiah, his ego is fed by his first-tier lieutenants, and he also intrigues against Nebuchadnezzar. Big mistake. So he had, Nebuchadnezzar by now has had enough of the whole thing. He lays the third and final siege of Jerusalem, levels the city, takes the people captive, destroys the temple, and appoints Gedaliah as governor. So that's the geopolitical profile. Now, Jehoiachin replaces Jehoiakim. He, is, he appears as Jeconiah, as I say, or also Kaniah in different passages. And the teenage Jehoiachin is also a wicked monarch, another one of these guys. Reigns only three months, but during that three months, he's earned some real notoriety. And it was his father's rebellion that really leads to the, the second siege. And so they finally capitulates, exiled to Babylon with many nobles. And this here where the temple is plundered and Ezekiel is taken captive. Jehoiachin is exiled to Babylon for 37 years and enslaved there. And he's finally released by a son's successor to Nebuchadnezzar. See, Belshazzar, as you always read about in Daniel 5, really isn't Nebuchadnezzar's son. He's his grandson. 
Uh, they don't have a word for that in the Aramaic and what have you. But in any case, so now we're down to Zedekiah, the last king, and the final and third siege, and that's the one that's going to be so vivid in Jeremiah's writings in what we call the Lamentations. There's finally a point where the governor appointed is also assassinated. Zedekiah is confusing to many people because he's a son of Josiah. There is a son by the name of Josiah, by the name of Mataniah. He was the full brother of Eliakim, the one whose name was changed to Jehoiakim. But therefore, Metaniah is the uncle, in effect, of Jehoiachin, who was just deported. So it's his uncle that Nebuchadnezzar, he changes his name from Metaniah to Zedekiah and is put in charge as a vassal of Babylon, obviously. But he doesn't realize that he's really supposed to just stay, remain a vassal. And so uh, his shenanigans result in the final third siege. And by the way, this whole business was out of Kaya and his name changing and so forth has been confirmed by archaeological finds called the Babylonian Chronicles and also the Lahish letters. Uh, you can check this out. Interestingly enough, these complexities are confirmed in the archaeological finds. But Zedekiah is a weak guy. He actually tries to be a friend to Jeremiah, but doesn't accomplish much. He's vacillating. He's a puppet, really, of Babylon. His first string officials are really Jeremiah's problem, in a sense, because they're all pro-Egypt. And they keep feeding the, the, the idea to Zedekiah that he can, he can make it if they want to rebel. And so the official policy should have been pro-Babylon, but the officials are really pro-Egypt. How often it is in governments where the the leader may have one view, but the people that really determine the policy are the establishment underneath him. We find that true in a, a number of closer situations. Anyway, uh, it's these officials, the first tier guys, that give Jeremiah a hard time because of his pro-Babylonian and also because of his theology. Both his politics are wrong from their point of view, and also his, his theological position is conservative. And so the, the, the second, it's the second tier that say that uh, Jeremiah is treasonous. And uh, that's where Jeremiah gets in all kinds of difficulties, even being thrown into prison. Now, Zedekiah lets him out of prison into a courtyard for a while because he's trying to be his friend, but he doesn't really uh, have any backbone here. So in the fourth year of Zedekiah, they plot against Babylon with the kings of Moab, Edom, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon. These are other tributaries around. As they plot, Jeremiah denounces that plot in his writings. Nothing happens. The ninth year of Zedekiah, he conspires against Pharaoh Hophra against Nebuchadnezzar. In this period, Jeremiah urges, again, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar because that's God's instrument of judgment. And uh, Zedekiah tries to support Jeremiah, but uh, he's nothing very effective. His enemies are, are the ones that really treat him badly. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes a dim view of all of this, so he finally has had enough of it, and he lays the third siege. The Jews celebrate that siege every year on the ninth of Av. It's astonishing to realize how many horrible, major milestones, negative milestones against Israel always occur on the ninth of Av. It's become an idiom in their culture. And this, of course, is one of the biggest ones of those. Interesting thing I have to include here is both Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophecy about Zedekiah. One says that he will die in Babylon. The other says that he will never see the Babylonian captivity. And that is so conspicuous that the, all the observers are taunting the prophets, saying, you guys can't even get your story straight. Well, <laughs> when the city finally falls, Zedekiah tries to escape, but he's caught, and he's chained. They slaughter all his sons in front of him, so that will be the last thing he'll remember. Then they put his eyes out and carry him off to Babylon in chains. 
And what did Ezekiel say? He shall not see it, though he shall die there. How vivid, how precise prophecy is. One of the great lessons you learn as you take your Bible seriously is that God means what He says and says what He means. And you quickly earn a respect for even the commas, so to speak. Pay attention to what this text is really saying. Well, Jeremiah is forced, strangely, into exile in Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar appoints Gedaliah as a governor. He's murdered by Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, who is a, of the Davidic house. Big plot, assassination, comes to nothing. But the rebels, the people who were involved in that mess, they flee to Egypt and they force Jeremiah to go with them. And Jeremiah and his secretary, Baruch, have to, are forced to go with him. So there's a big irony here. Here's Jeremiah, who has always preached against Egypt, pro-Babylon, is now forced into exile in Egypt. Now there is a tradition, this is where we get confused because there's a tradition that he was stoned in Egypt. Some rabbis have that tradition. Another rabbinical tradition is that once Nebuchadnezzar defeats, finally defeats Egypt, which he does, that when that's all over, he takes Jeremiah back to Babylon. And Jeremiah finally dies in comfort in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. That's another tradition. None of these, there's different scholars have different views. Now Jeremiah's personal background, he's son of Hilkiah, who was of the priestly family, and many scholars believe it was from that family that the Torah was found, incidentally. Uh, that Hilkiah is the same Hilkiah that found the book of the law in the temple in 2 Kings 22. And there's some descendancies here, uh, but uh, apparently he had property because Jeremiah is engaged in a major real estate transaction as part of the episodes here. So we think he came, he's from Anathoth, not Jerusalem. And that may be one of the reasons, may one of the reasons he isn't that visible in some of the early stages here because he's in Anathoth, which is outside some miles. He was not married. He was denied to be able to be married by God. He had, even though he's a man of means, he was committed by God to the path that he stuck to all the way through. And he was called for 40 years as a prophet. His closest companion was Baruch, the son of Neriah, who was the scribe and secretary, amanuensis, if you will. And that's, this is the context, the background, in which he wrote these famed lamentations to commemorate the fall of the city. It's obviously the fall of cities very fresh in his mind. It's after the fall, but very shortly after the fall, that they apparently were written. And his major premises that we're going to explore here is only faithfulness to God can guarantee a nation's security. They were looking to the wrong places for their security. And it's suggested that his message is desperately needed for us today, or we may be faced with the same trauma that faced Jeremiah, the decay and the demise of his beloved city. The U.S. is a disaster morally. We've forgotten the covenant on which this country was founded. It's been abandoned, tragically. Our problems are desperate also. And our answers are probably no different than ones Jeremiah had laid out before Judah. Judah was facing its enemies, and we are facing ours. The answers to all of our problems are not in the ballot box. They're in the prayer closet. Our problems are solved the same way they were then. Only faithfulness to God can guarantee our nation's security. Now something else that surfaces in all of this is idolatry. We constantly read about idolatry. Josiah got rid of it, but it still came back. Idolatry is always associated with immorality and vice versa. And as we understand Jeremiah better, we will see with a new perception what's going on around us in our own predicament. 
So their geopolitical background, to profile it one more time, from 588 to 586, the army of Babylon ground away at the defenses of Jerusalem. They had a momentary flush of excitement when their rebellion against Babylon was replaced uh, finally with uncertainty because their ally Egypt had been vanquished. They, They gambled on Egypt, and it turned out Egypt was unable to rescue Judah. They tried, but they were unable to rescue Judah from Babylon's grasp. And one by one, all the other cities in Judea fell. It finally just remained the city, the capital itself, Jerusalem itself. So there was a, t- a siege laid on uh, Jerusalem for 30 months that got so severe, so severe, that starving mothers ate their own children. That's hard for us to conceive of. That's hard for us to conceive. And yet we have a culture that insists upon murdering our children. And adultery flourished as the people cried out to any and every god for deliverance. Paranoia gripped the people until they were willing to kill God's prophet as a traitor and spy just because he spoke the truth. Jeremiah, traitor and a spy, hardly. Anyway, this long siege entered, entered abruptly in July 18th of 586 B.C., The walls were breached. The Babylonian army began to enter the city. King Zedekiah and the remaining men in his army tried to flee, but they were captured. It took several weeks for Nebuchadnezzar to secure the city and strip it of its valuables. But by August 14th of 586, the task was completed. The destruction of the city began. The armies burned the temple, the king's palace, and all the major buildings. They tore down the walls which provided their protection. And when they finally finished their destruction, they departed with the prisoners. They left nothing more than a jumbled heap and a smoldering rubble of what had been their proud capital. Jeremiah witnessed the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the city. The once proud capital was turned to dust. The people were now under the harsh hand of a cruel taskmaster. The older men were killed. The women were raped. The young men made slaves. There were no animals left. They'd eaten, eaten all of them for food. So they, all, the, all the manual burden work was done by the young slaves. So all this is on Jeremiah's mind as he composes his laments. There are five poems or hymns. Chapter 1 is where he dwells, of course, on the miseries that were put upon them. Speaks of the city as a solitary widow weeping softly. The second chapter, these miseries are described in, in, as a result of their national sins. It's not Babylon that's caused it. That's just God's instrument of judgment. What caused the captivity and all of that was the national sins. That's a point that Jeremiah tries to get across. Chapter 3 is the pivotal hope. These other chapters are 22 verses that are acrostic. They all start with the succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 is not 22, it's 66 verses, three lines per letter, but it's the bright spot of the whole scenario. It speaks of the hope, for ultimately, for the people of God. As dark as it is, and as deserving as they are, it's really a testimony to God's love, that they're not wiped out. They're chastised, but not wiped out. And that would be for their own good for a better day. Chapter 4 laments the ruin and destruction that he's confronted with. But again, it traces it back to their sins. And then the final chapter is really, in effect, a prayer. 
It's the one chapter that's not acrostic. And be taken away, the, 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 the reproach will be taken away, and the people will ultimately recover. The first four poems out of the, out of the five are acrostic. Each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Just like, like many of the Psalms. Psalm 24, 34, 37, 111, 112, 145, 1, especially 119 are the same kind of a structure. It's presumed by many scholars that that was organized to help make it easier to memorize. But that's a conjecture. The first, second, and fourth have 22 verses, same number of Hebrew letters. Third has 66. In other words, three verses that begin with each the successive letters. The fifth one is not an acrostic. It's really a prayer, a little different... There's also something else I picked up. There's a thing called the kinometer. It's a frequent use of in the in the chapters one to four. It's a rhythmic pattern in which the second half of a line of verse has one less beat than the first half of a line. It's very analogous in the music to a minor chord, if it will. It it, it creates a dirge. It creates a very funeral feeling to the passage, even just as a piece of... Uh, of course, that's in the Hebrew, not the English. And this forms a three to plus two, what some people call a limping meter, which conveys a hollow, incomplete feeling to the reader. There's also a chiasmic structure of the whole thing, because Lamentations chapter 1 is Jerusalem's desolation. From there we go to the emphasis that it's God's judgment. Not the Babylonians, it's God's judgment that's really operative here. And that leads to the peak of the whole thing, Jeremiah's response to all this, to recognize what is what it is, but also as a, a reminder of God's love. The fourth chapter is on God's anger. And finally, the, the response of the remnant that survives, what it should be. And there's a chiasmic structure here that implies organization that may not be obvious as you just go through Jeremiah's throbbing concerns. So jump right in. Chapter 1, Jerusalem sits as a solitary widow weeping solely. The first dirge has, first is from being the outside looking in, and then he's going to shift from the inside looking out. He personifies Jerusalem as it calls to those that are bystanders. Let's just jump in. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How is she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces, how has she become a tributary? So, you see, the whole concept of widowhood in the Old Testament is, depicts a position of helpless despair is the idea. It's often linked to uh, orphans or strangers that are, couldn't protect themselves and so forth. That's an idiom in the Hebrew. Verse 2, she weepeth sore in the night. And her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. You notice the whole idiom here isn't that of a critic. It's one of a compassionate concern. He's involved. And it's interesting that Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. There was another one that wept over Jerusalem some 600 years later because of what was going to happen to her. To Jeremiah, the destruction of Jerusalem was history. To Jesus, when he wept over Jerusalem, it was a matter of prophecy, yet future. And so we might remind ourselves in Matthew's, Matthew's primary theme was the, the purpose, the tragedy, and the triumph of all history. The purpose of all history, the tragedy of all history, and the triumph of all history. 
And the last few verses of chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus, having ridden that donkey in Jerusalem, says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered chickens under her wings? That's the purpose of all history. But you would not. That's the tragedy. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And when Jesus is weeping over that, 38 years later, again, the Romans, again on the ninth of Av on the Jewish calendar, destroyed the place. You would not. Here's the triumph, though. doesn't leave without hope. But I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth until ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. There is a bright day coming. Till ye shall say. Those milestones are important. Well, let's get back to Jeremiah and Lamentations, because he will do that. by He'll pick up on that in chapter 3. But we're still in chapter 1. Judah has gone into captivity because of affliction, because of great servitude. She dwelt among the heathen. She findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn, because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. Her adversaries are the chief, her enemies prosper, for the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Let's not lose sight of the purpose here. This is God doing this to them, in effect. Babylon just the instrument. For the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture. Hearts being a deer, an antelope type thing. And they are gone without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her, the adversaries saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Jerusalem has grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her. Because they have seen her nakedness, yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. All the way through here will echoes of the real cause is Jerusalem's behavior. The fact that Babylon conquered her is just simply God's instrument. Her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembered not her last end. Therefore, she came down wonderfully, and she had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy hath magnified himself. The adversary hath spread out his hand upon her pleasant things, for she hath seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom thou didst command that they should not enter into the congregation. The Gentiles were in the temple. To them that was an anathema. They were not, the heathen were not to be allowed there. Well, they're run over running the place. They're tearing it apart, stealing the valuables, burning it down. See, they, this building was what they had relied on for their security. should be relying on God, not the building. But that was a symbol of their, uh, like a fetish in a sense. This very thing that they had relied on is now defiled before their eyes. Gentiles who were not supposed to enter it were in it. The thought that's being advanced here is they're looking at this sort of like a good luck charm. And they felt that Jerusalem was safe because God's house was there. He might let other people be destroyed, but not his own house. That was the mentality. Well, surprise, surprise. People learn too late that God does not hold stones in higher regard than obedience. Disobedience brings destruction. And I 
painfully fear that that's the lesson that we're about to learn as we outlaw the Bible in our schools, as we ignore the Bible in our laws and our courts. Continuing verse 11, all her people sigh, they seek bread. They have given their pleasant things for meat to relieve the soul. Oh, O Lord, consider, for I am become vile. It is nothing to you, all ye that pass by. He's sort of speaking here, idiomatically, he's changing uh, point of view. He's now speaking as if he's Jerusalem, talking to the people going by. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Whose fierce anger? Not Nebuchadnezzar's. God's fierce anger. There is a poem that might be worth taking a look at. Jehovah Zidkenu. That's Jeremiah's term for God our righteousness. I oft read with pleasure to soothe and engage Isaiah's wild measure or John's simple page. But even when they pictured the blood sprinkled tree, Jehovah Zidkenu was nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul. Yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Jehovah Zitkanu was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me by light from on high. Then legal fears shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in itself could I see. Jehovah Zitkanu, my Savior must be. My terrors all vanished before that sweet name. My guilty fears banished when with boldness I came. To drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah you know, is all things to me. Famous poem by McShane. How often, even in our churches, do we fail to really appropriate the reality of our need for a Savior? How often we go to church to feel good, to improve whatever, rather than to simply acknowledge the debt that's been paid. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Lamentations. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.